Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri and today I'm happy to welcome Dr. Matt Might to Raise the Line, whose impactful career in computer science and medicine has been shaped by the rare disease odyssey of one of his children. His son, Bertrand, was the first person in the world diagnosed with a particular form of NGLY1 deficiency, a neurodegenerative condition that causes developmental delays, seizures, and frequent infections. Unfortunately, Bertrand succumbed to an infection at the age of 12 in 2020, but by that time, Dr. Might's work in precision medicine had led to crucial discoveries for dozens of children with NGLY1 deficiency and an AI-based system that is helping solve medical mysteries of all sorts. Dr. Might has been the director of the Hugh Call Precision Medicine Institute at the University of Alabama at Birmingham since 2017, where he's also a professor of internal medicine and a professor of computer science. From 2016 to 2018, he worked on the Obama administration's Precision Medicine Initiative. Just prior to that, he joined the faculty of the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School, where he's currently a senior lecturer. Before we get started, I wanted to note connections to two other Raise the Line guests, Matt Wilsey of Grace Science, whose daughter also suffers from NGLY1 deficiency, and Chris Gibson, the founder of Recursion Pharmaceuticals, who has been involved in the quest for NGLY1 deficiency treatments. So Dr. Mike, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. And, and you have quite an interesting career. Uh, I know our audience will find it fascinating. Starting with your beginnings in computer science, can you give our audience a bit of a breakdown of what got you interested in computer science and then eventually cybersecurity? Sure. Um, well, maybe it happened in the reverse order. So when I was 12 years old, I was getting into mischief on the internet. Uh, this is sort of the early days of the internet, as it were, like Prodigy and AOL were around, but you could get online. Um and I kind of took to hacking. I really enjoyed it. And from that developed you know, a broader love of computing, computer science and all that. Uh, and that really stuck with me all the way through the time I got to college where I finally majored in it, ultimately got a PhD in it. Um, but it's it's always been a passion. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that's how a lot of people get into it. I think that the two ways are like white hat hacking or game development. Uh, the best software engineers I've met mm-hmm. between those two. So, you know, obviously you've, uh, now I've been applying your computer science skills to precision medicine for a while. Talk to us a bit about uh, your diagnostic odyssey that, that your family went through with Bertrand. Yeah, so uh, Bertrand was my eldest son uh, and had a four-year diagnostic odyssey, you know, have, where we had no clue what was wrong right from birth. It ultimately ended with uh, really one of the first trials ever of a form of genomic sequencing to sort of figure out what was going on with a very small group of kids who had been on similar intractable diagnostic odysseys. That that was done at Duke University. And the uh, shocking result came back that Bertrand appeared to have this brand new genetic disease, NGLY1 deficiency. And when we say brand new, I mean, obviously the disease has been with our species for a while. He was just the first person discovered with it. Yeah, so f- four years in the making. And can you talk to us a bit about like the specifics of the Odyssey? Like, was it ultimately you found the right specialist at Duke that tested for that gene, or was it a whole genome sequence that Bertrand went through? Or it was a, a whole exome sequence in this case. You know, genomes were still very expensive at the time, and exomes sort of produced this overnight breakthrough in cost because they were designed to look at the two percent of the human genome that's protein coding, which is where we assumed, and turns out correctly so that the vast majority of genetic disease lies. 
Um, so by looking at a very small fraction of the genome, you can capture most of the genetic disease. Uh, and that's what suddenly made it feasible. It's what allowed that clinical trial to go forward. That's a good distinction for our audience to know. We want to start a bit with, after the diagnosis, kind of what was life at home like, NGLI1 deficiency, and then unfortunately, I know Bertrand passed away two years ago, but tell us a bit more about kind of what it was like being a parent uh, of, of a child with a rare disease during that, that course of, uh, of his life. I kind of divide it into the undiagnosed and the diagnosed periods. You know, the undiagnosed period is just sort of, uh, it's kind of terrifying every day. And it's not like it's not terrifying afterwards, but just not knowing what's going on, not knowing what could come next, having no sense of the future and random hospitalizations thrown at you. Uh, it's its a hard life. The analogy I've heard and used before is that it's like, you're just drowning every day and you're just trying to tread water. That's that's the, a day in the life of a rare disease parent. And you know, during that undiagnosed phase, you're also trying to learn as much medicine or genetics or whatever as you can to hopefully figure out what it is. And then afterward, it's not genetics. You're trying to figure out, okay, how do I develop a drug? Um, you know, what is a drug? Yeah, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so it just flips what you're trying to learn when you go from undiagnosed to diagnosed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just last week, I know Matt, I so saw him in Stanford. I mentioned before we started the podcast, Matt Wilsey. I think it was big, big news for the NGLI1 community with the first IND being submitted. Um, and I know there's a conference there. You know, so I'd love to hear more about the Precision Medicine Institute work, uh, as well as your work at UIB with the AI system you developed. Can you give us a bit of a sense of how you turned, obviously, a devastating diagnosis and, and family experience into something so revolutionary and transformative that has applications well beyond NGLI1? Bertrand's odyssey kind of snowballed beyond just him. Uh, I snowballed into finding other NGLI1 patients, of course. It snowballed into trying to find treatments. But what it really did is it gave me an appreciation for how this was done, along with some realizations that now is sort of the perfect time to have not just computer science and medicine, but computer scientists and medicine. And, and one thing I saw right away was some of the potential for AI to make a difference. And so when it comes to finding treatments, um, I, I should say I'm agnostic as to approach. So I, you know, obviously I'll do the computational stuff if I can, but the Institute itself also does plenty of stuff in a wet lab too. Um, so it's, it's sort of a whatever gets the job done type type of approach for us. And in the case of AI, I like it just because it's it's easy and it's cheap when patients reach out. You know, we can generally run queries pretty fast. So we have developed a pretty extensive AI system at the Precision Medicine Institute at UAB. It's called MediCanron. It's largely funded by um, the NCATS consortium called Translator. And uh, through this, it's been able to absorb hundreds of different data sets in a structured fashion through a number of teams that we collaborate with. And then we build um, automated reasoning on top of that, sort of connect the data points between all these data sets uh, and allow us to make inferences about what could help influence some core mechanism of harm in a disease. That's really what it's all about. And I should say one of the key data sets here has actually been uh, a natural language processing of the entire medical literature. So that one data set alone is probably responsible for like 30% of uh, what we end up recommending to patients. And it's kind of shocking when you think about that, because technically all of that was already known in theory. Um, it's just that no individual physician actually knows all of it. And so we can spot stuff that goes unforeseen or just unknown or is very old. And then when we connect dots between different data sets too, we make inferences that, you know, because no two people have those data sets in their head at the same time, you know, they couldn't make the connection, but of course an AI can. We could spend so much time talking about the, these applications, um, 
my mentor here at Elsevier is a guy named Jan Herzog and loves talking about connecting the dots and the value you can create for the world by just having the different silos talk to each other. You know, part of why we joined Elsevier is they're the largest publisher of scientific journals. And so a big part of what we're trying to do with rare diseases is make them more accessible. We're launching a journal of rare diseases next year and trying to make it more accessible for researchers, patients, and others to access these articles, you know, for these applications. Um, talk to us a bit about like, so there's obviously the NGLI-1 applications and rare disease applications, but very specifically, like, you know, what are some applications for Medicandrin like that, that you've been most proud of over the past, you know, say two, three years? And where do you see it going over the next couple of years? Because it does seem like everything is getting exponentially better. You know, I think we're going from GPT-3 to GPT-4 very soon. And that's like an order of magnitude or more better than what we've seen. Yeah, in some ways, it's still very early days in the application of all this technology relative to its long-term potential. But even so, it's already producing um, some big wins for patients. And I think that's what's exciting to me is that, yeah, in terms of the maturity of what it's done, if we look at some of the first cases we tackled when I got to UAB, sort of right after we built the system, some of them have reached extraordinary milestones. So for example, there's a there's an autism driven by mutations in a gene called ADNP. That's the gene name. And one of our first predictions was for that particular disorder. So in that case, the, the ADNP gene is working at sort of 50% strength. The query was, okay, well, how do we make it work harder? Um, you know, what, what increases the activity of this gene? And it actually came back with an interesting answer. It said, uh, have you tried low-dose ketamine? Uh, no, obviously. <laughs> no one's considered that yet. But sure enough, that ended up working. You know, so we, we knew it was working in patients probably two years ago. Then the patient community got a clinical trial done. And a year after that, the paper finally got published. Uh, so that was, that's very recent. So almost four years from the time the prediction was made to the time that there's like scientific validation or the gold standard validation of a publication, did it finally happen? But, um, we can certainly point to that and say it's, it's real. It made a prediction. No human would have made it turned into a clinical trial and it worked. Um, so that's, that's exciting almost no matter how you look at it. And, And also the fact that it was in a field with very little pharmacological progress, autism, That in and of itself is exciting too. And I just, I see that as the tip of the iceberg. We've certainly had other patients where in in some cases, literally just better mastery of the literature helped. Like that's all it took. The example I like to point to there was a a case of a girl who had cyclic vomiting syndrome and, you know, long ordeals in the hospital, desperate parents, not sure what to do. Uh, A medical team that felt they'd tried everything. Uh, except that, you know, when you actually apply NLP to the entire medical literature, there's like 347 possible treatments out there that have been proposed at different points in time. And so just going down that list till we started finding stuff they hadn't considered was all it took. And in that case, it was nasally inhaled isopropyl alcohol. I mean, it wasn't any more complicated than that. And that worked. Um, it just wasn't well known to anybody on the medical team or to any of us, frankly. Uh, but there are three papers out there that say it, it might actually work. And so sometimes we just find stuff like that that was sitting out there and it's technically known, but no one knows it. Those are great examples. Really good. Um, actually, you preempted one of my questions, which is one of my friends and former guests on the podcast, David Fagenbaum. Um, I'm on his advisory board for Every Cure. And actually, it was through Every Cure that I met Tanya Simoncelli at Chan Zuckerberg, who, who recommended I get in touch with you too, and Tanisha Coates, both of them speak highly of you, uh, where his whole, like, Every Cure is about 
repurposing drugs. That there are 3,000 drugs already. In his case, he had Castleman disease, as you know. Serolimus was a common drug that really helped him in about a third of Castleman patients, similar to what you mentioned with low-dose ketamine, potentially for this type of autism. Tell us a bit more about kind of how do you scale that out? How do you take these couple examples? What do you need to repurpose more drugs or to get more of these discoveries? Is it more human capital, more data sets, more funding, a combination of all of that? It's it's some combination, but more of some things than other things for sure. So there seems to be a desperate lack of funding for clinical trials when it comes to repurposing. And so usually it kind of unfolds like this. You know, we get a promising prediction, we work with the clinical team, they try it out, we see something promising in the patient. We go, okay, now what? Well, the, the next step would be to reach out to the larger community. Let's do a trial. Uh, and every single time that becomes one of the big stumbling blocks. You know, putting together and funding a clinical trial that would give us that gold standard validation that we really got it right. Uh, and this is something the patients really should look at. For me, I think that's the biggest obstacle. Um, certainly other data sets would make a difference too. So. We over leverage certain data sets, like so there's one called Lynx, another one called CMAP. And these are data sets that have built up large transcriptomic profiles of uh, drugs interacting with cells. These are really valuable for making predictions about repurposing, but they're very sparse relative to the, to the total space of cell types and genes and all the drugs you'd really want in these data sets. And so make a lot of inferences that you know, I wish we didn't have to make. Um, and where I just, you know, just ground truth would make a huge difference. Hmm. Interesting. I'm wondering like one overarching question I have and one of the benefits of doing this podcast is you get asked questions like this to, to experts like yourself is just how do we connect these dots to and you know, if there's something we can follow up on about how you know, maybe Elsevier could be helpful with providing more data. Uh, I'd love to touch base on that. Uh, going to the clinical trials aspect though. So what are some like the hurdles? I, I know one is getting enough numbers to run a clinical trial of patients, right? When your son was uh, diagnosed with NGLY1, he was the first. Now there's a, what, uh, 800 patients worldwide or so, maybe it's been last 70 families on your newsletter? Yeah, I think about 70 families that we're in touch with. And depending on sort of the frequency of the alleles, probably 500, maybe 800. It's, you know, roughly that are probably out there somewhere. Yeah, we're, we're in, in contact with a pretty sizable fraction of them, but there's clearly more that, that haven't been contacted yet. Yeah, language barriers, access barriers, et cetera. Yeah, you know, at 70, you have enough to do a clinical trial, sort of just, just barely, um, but probably not more than one clinical trial. That in and of itself actually leads to issues too when you have more than one candidate you might want to try. Um, and that is actually the case in the NGLY1 community. They we're fortunate enough that there's more than one potential route to a treatment at this point, which is not what every community is facing. Usually it's the case where there might be a, a proposed treatment, but nowhere near enough patients to actually do a trial. Um, and even if there is, then not enough funding to do the trial. So there's only a handful of communities that I think have really been able to run all the way because they, they happen to have that magic combination of numbers and funding and, and something to do. What's an example? Like I, one thing that comes to mind is epidermolysis bullosa seems to be a, a good example. We've had two people from those communities and they seem to be pretty far along in their discovery process. Yeah, in terms of, you know, different communities at different points, that's a good example. Um, one we're working on right now is the KCNMA1 gain-of-function community. So there's two different disorders for the gene KCNMA1. And we found what seems to be an excellent treatment for the hyperactive or gain-of-function side of this community. There's probably just enough patients to do a clinical trial, but 
no funds to do it. Um, you know, in this case, we've reached out to the company that has the patent, um, see if they're interested maybe, and they aren't. Um, it was a thoughtful no, but it was a very honest no. It was like, a, well, there's just not enough for these patients to justify a whole new clinical trial. Um, and I, I get it. And, you know, their, their view is kind of like, well, they could just take it off label. And, and I suppose that, I mean, that's what's a- effectively happening already. But, you know, it'd be nice to actually get good answers and good data to really guide these patients and the use of uh, these medications. Yeah, very interesting. You know, one topic I know Matt Wilsey's talked a bunch about is biomarkers. And we had another guy, Luke Rosen, on the podcast talking about KIF-1A, which is uh, his child has KIF-1A uh, syndrome. Uh, and the need for us to better understand endpoints, right? Because it may not be, you know, valid enough for like a clear endpoint as defined by the FDA, but like the quality of life is improving because we found, you know, something like off-label ketamine or something for autism that it may not justify a current clinical trial, but maybe there needs to be a rare disease clinical trial pathway. Is that sort of kind of what the community needs, you think? or? Yeah, I think when it comes to rare in general, we've got to think differently about clinical trials. Uh, I think we we have to expand our flexibility in terms of what we'll accept in terms of endpoints. In, in some sense, we have to look at what endpoints are realistically measurable uh, on the timeframes available and likely enough to produce meaningful effect sizes so that we actually can be somewhat confident that it's doing what we think it's doing. For me, uh, in some sense, even focusing too much on the efficacy side is is a big problem. Um, yeah, I, I feel like in a lot of cases, we'd be better off focusing on the safety side and then worrying about the efficacy side through really innovative data science later on, whether it's uh, after some sort of new sort of limited approval or through a, a very innovative trial design of some sort. Uh, I think that's probably the way to go. That is interesting. And again, that echoes what some other parents of rare disease children have said, which is clearly they're motivated to make sure any of these medications that they're trying are safe. Uh, but they also have this you know, race against time that they want to make sure they're getting getting therapies in their bodies. So fascinating. Um, you know, turning our attention to just precision medicine as a whole, would love to hear about your experience working in the Obama administration. And then now moving forward, what are some of the other things that get you most excited about precision medicine? I was really fortunate to be able to work for President Obama on the precision medicine initiative, really right from the beginning, even, you know, helping to co-author one of the original white papers, laying out the the structure of the initiative. What was you know great to me was the recognition of its necessity in the first place. This realization that okay, uh, clinical genomes are about to be a thing, and now they are, and we're really bad at interpreting them. Even now, I mean, you know, because we're still building these data sets. If you sequence a, a patient who looks like they have a rare genetic disease, and you pull out all these mutations, um, only about a third of the time do we get it right. By that mean, like we actually find an answer and the rest of the time we go, well, I don't know which of these mutations it might be. Um, and so, you know, the recognition seven years ago that this problem was coming, I think is incredible. And the fact that we started building the data set to answer these questions that far back, um, I, I think is, is prescient. And now, of course, it's not just rare disease patients that you know, need their genomes. We're all getting genomes uh, or 23andMe or something like that. And we're all wondering, okay, well, what does that mutation mean for my health? So that was exciting to be a part of that effort to build what I call the, you know, the Rosetta Stone of the human genome so that we would be able to answer these questions in a meaningful way um, for, for every patient as they start to encounter their own genetic data. Yeah, it's very exciting. And, and so obviously that's seven years ago and things are 
you know, we just had, as I mentioned, had Max Bronstein on the podcast talking about ARPA-H as a potential, you know, other funding source for these kind of innovations. Yeah, it's definitely a space that we want our learners to watch because the, the way they practice medicine may completely change. How far off do you think we are from, you know, every newborn, every person getting their genome data? Uh, not just, a, you know, like a 23andMe, but like a whole genome. I know Illumina just released the $200 one. Let's be honest. It's, the problem isn't cost. <laughs> it's, it hasn't been cost for a while. Um the cost is actually, I mean, at least in terms of the raw data cost, like generating the data is just not, it's not that expensive anymore. You could conceivably do it for everybody at this point. It's really more on an ethics side and on sort of a, you know, do we have the bandwidth to tell everybody what their genome means side? You know, we, we don't have enough genetic counselors, I think, to properly counsel every newborn. And then the ongoing counseling, I mean, your genome stays the same the information that we know about your genome does not. And so you almost need an update every single year of what we've learned in the past year about your genome. Um, I, th I think that's that's another piece of the puzzle. So the big issue, and I don't think anybody has a good answer to this yet, is you know, maybe Robert Greene, if anybody has, has sort of tried to figure out what this looks like, is, okay, you sequence a newborn and you just found out they're like, you know, double APOE4. So they're probably going to get Alzheimer's and get it earlier than most. Um, what do you tell those parents? What do you tell that child as he or she grows up? That's that's the problem. And I would want to know for my kids, uh, and I do know for my kids. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of an information maximalist as, as a parent, um, but we are concerned about what about the people that don't want to know? And, and I guess they just don't participate. I guess that's the, the bottom line. But you know, any parent out there that right now that wants their newborn sequenced, there's nothing stopping you. You can do it. That's really interesting. And I know these are really challenging bioethical issues. And we were talking about 23andMe because we had Ann Wojcicki on the podcast. And we work with 23andMe to try getting primary care providers, NPs, PAs more trained on direct-to-consumer genetics and genomics in general. There's only 5,000 genetic counselors in the country. That's not enough, as you've said. Nowhere near enough. To interpret this. So we need to get PAs to know, know this better and other primary care folks. So we're working to upskill them. Um, but even that's changing year to year. And even doing the 23andMe, every year, you're kind of like getting notifications, like just like you get on social media where like somebody commented on a post you had. Similarly, now we know this about a mutation you have or something in your genome or you've discovered a long lost family member or something like that. So, you know, 23andMe has a good model, but what they know is only a fraction of what they can safely say because, you know, they have this very clear process for doing it, you know, very carefully and their threshold has got to be set very high so that they can be very confident that they're telling you the right thing. I know this because, of course, I've got my I've got my raw twenty three me data. I've got my whole genome. I can compare what my whole genome tells me versus what the twenty three me data tells me versus what the site actually tells me. And these are three very different things. But what I will say is that raw twenty three me data does cover most of the really interesting stuff in the whole genome. It, it didn't miss anything really interesting, uh, as, as far as I could tell. So yeah, the, the snips that were picked were picked well. Um, I, I, I can say that. But you know, when you compare what's in your raw 23andMe data versus you know what's in your reports, it's like <laughs> it's so far apart. But that, again, it's because that level of caution is critical, uh, and how to do it thoughtfully, how to return it appropriately. And I, I respect the challenge; it's it's a big one. Yeah, no, totally. Where do you you know putting back your cybersecurity hat, which is why we're talking in the first place? What got you interested in this entire space? 
you know, so there's the ethical aspect, but what about like the just the cybersecurity privacy aspects of keeping a whole genome safe? Uh, is that overplayed or are we getting into a sharing economy where everyone should know this? Certainly, I think there would be implications for speeding up drug development, right? I think um, it's, it's one of those situations where we're not quite sure what the security risks of posting your genome publicly are. You know, George Church is piloting this where he's having people post their genome publicly just to see what happens. And it's worth looking at the consent for that that study. Um, it's it's fascinating because, you know, they had to brainstorm all these hypothetical risks of what could happen to you if you post your genome publicly. It's like, for example, like this is like part of the process. They'll say like, you know, technically someday in the future, somebody might use your publicly posted genome to clone your blood and plant it at a crime scene. Just so you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, be aware that once this is out there, that could happen. So it's just fascinating to think about all the things that could happen someday, even if they're not yet possible right now, um, by having your genome out there publicly. Yeah, thin line between the utopia that we're going towards and a, and a potential dystopia, depending on... It's like technology is not good or bad. It's how people apply it, really, it seems so. Right. You know, well, what's interesting is the controversy around the use of these genomics data sets to catch serial killers. Arguably, it's a good thing to catch serial killers, right? <laughs> well, we're all happy when that happens, but we could also admit it was a little creepy how it was done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's Black Mirror, interesting. Very interesting. Um, <laughs> I'm aware of your time, so I don't want to keep you much longer than what we scheduled. So I had two other questions for you. The first is, you know, you've had a very interesting career at the intersection of computer science and, and medicine, and you're still getting started in many ways. What advice would you give to our audience about approaching their careers? You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I guess for, for myself, I, you know, if I could redo my own career, I, I would have stayed computer science, but I would, I would have learned the biology earlier, uh, earlier than I was forced to by, by Bertrand's odyssey, I, I, I think for sure. So I think for anybody out there right now, if you're already in sort of the biological track, don't despair. There's plenty of time and plenty of resources for learning the computational side. And the more you do, the more opportunities are available to you. And, you know, I, I work with students going in both directions, students that are um, computational in nature that want to become more biological or students who are biological who want to become more computational. You can move in either direction, um, but that fusion is very powerful. Agreed. Yeah, that's great. And hopefully people will look up uh, UAB and your institute uh, and see what they can do from there. Um, and then the last question, is there anything else you want to get across to our audience that we haven't yet talked about? You know, I, I think we, we've covered a lot. Um, precision medicine is obviously a vast space. Uh, AI and repurposing are, are one small part of it, but a very important part of it. So what I, what I tell folks is if it seems like repurposing isn't the right fit for you, don't, don't worry. There's other routes you can take. You know, it might be a gene therapy. It might be gene editing. There's There's all these other modalities emerging all the time. So Explore them all is what I would say when you're thinking about how to apply precision medicine at the level of an individual patient or a small patient group. Yeah, that's great. Great advice. And I'm hoping that people will take it to heart because this truly will be how people practice medicine in the next, not just 20 years, but maybe 10, maybe even five in, in many ways. So Dr. Mike, thank you so much for not only taking the time to be with us on the podcast, but more importantly, for the work that you're doing to, to bring this future to reality. Oh, well, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And with that, I'm Shiv Gaglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes 
at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.